Hello and welcome to Behind the Scenes with Colin Edmonds, a podcast in which I talk about my life and career as a successful comedy writer in British television. I'll also talk about my interests and inspirations and chat with the occasional guest. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to share it and give us a five-star review. To find out more about me or to order any of my books, please check out my website. All the links are in the podcast notes. And I hope you enjoy this week's episode. It's impossible to pigeonhole this week's behind-the-scenes guest. He is an entertainment editor, a columnist on two national newspapers. He's a critic, a social and cultural historian, presenter, biographer, board game inventor, and a singer. So far, he's... <laughs> a hollow laugh. <laughs> yeah. oh, singing, singing, he's bigging it up. <laughs> so far, my guest has published 20 books and five novels. He's also an authority on Scar, Reggae, Two-Tone, Oi, Hard Rock, Heavy Metal, and Punk Rock. He's a polymath in every sense of the word, and he's a member of Mensa. He is Gary Bushell. Welcome, sir. Blimey, Cole. More jobs than George Osborne there for a lot less money. A lot less money. I, I, I don't know if that's a testament to work ethic or, or ADHD. I think it's a testament to work ethic because, okay, let's start there. Because I would contend, given that laundry list I've just announced, that you are probably one of the hardest workers writers in the country to consistently maintain your level of output, either in journalism or in literature. So, so what's the geography of your day? What sort of hours do you put in? Well, I normally start at the crack of dawn, a lovely lady, as you know, and, and finish late. <laughs> Uh, so in the week, in the middle of the week, and Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, I'm regularly doing 15 to 16 hour days, more than I used to because I'm now juggling three jobs, uh, as you said. Yeah, I've got the TV column and the, the album review columns and the normal work, as well as anything else I'm trying to do. <laughs> so it's it's quite a, a lot of pressure, but I enjoy that. Well, if that's the, as long as you enjoy it, that's the important thing. As long as it doesn't become a chore, I find. Uh, do you find, though, that... that Work into deadlines. Deadlines are your best friend. They certainly concentrate the mind. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, when, you, when you know you've got to deliver, then there's no, oh, I'll do it tomorrow. You've got to deliver because tomorrow it's got the press. So, Yes, I understand. And and yours is really, you're, you're living and working in the world of first draft only, aren't you? You haven't really got the time to sit back on it and refine and, and flowery up phrase making. This is why I did refining before I send it in. <laughs> you can, ah, you know, yeah. I rewrite and rewrite just to get it right. You know, you just sweat sometimes over just the phrasing of things to make sure. Yes. And then the subs will come along and change the phrasing, so you have to change it back. But it's okay. It's, it's not a big deal. That must be a constant source of, not irritation, let's call it angst. Well, no, it, it trouble is, you see, especially in the 80s when I first started doing the column, the subs were trained to cut from the bottom up. 
because you put all, you write a news story, you put all the important stuff at the top, and and you pad it out at the end. So I would actually, obviously, quite quite different if you're trying to write a joke because you you're, you're building up to the punchline, and it, the copy would come back with a punchline missing. So none of it made any sense. So I was it was I was luckily it was an overnight page, so I could always check it the next day and restore it. You know, do your own cuts and get the joke back in. Yes, I I understand that. I want to talk about your journalistic career in a minute, but. Starting from the start, your dad was a fireman, am I right? He was, yeah. And yours yeah. was a proper working class upbringing in South London. So you had no ambitions whatsoever to follow your dad's career path? My dad was very adamant that he didn't want me or my brother going down that route. Mm. Um, for each, Because it's a tough job, I think. And I, I think he want, wanted something, not better, but different for us. Something less uh, threatening, I suppose, life-threatening. <laughs> And it was, he was a fireman at a time when it was a life, there weren't the safety measures per se imposed on the job at, at that time in the what, in the 50s oh, or 60s? No. I remember, yeah, I remember as a kid going into my, when he was working nights and there'd be a big shout on, she'd be listening to it on police radio and sobbing when she was, you know, because uh, the worry of it, of would he come home the next day or would he come home late that night? It was uh, a constant factor, yeah. Yes, I, I, but that's because of, because of, because of him being a fireman and his friends being a fireman, the, the humour I grew up with was always a very black humour <laughs> because it's the way they survive, it's the way they cope with that situation. They have, and I think it's the same with the military, same with the police, uh, and and so that's probably explains why some of the humour I like is a bit acerbic. That's interesting. So that that informed your your approach to comedy. Oh, that, that's really interesting. What came first wanting to oh, knowing that you were never going to be allowed to be a fireman uh what came first was it an interest in show business television or was it an interest in writing per se i uh, loved comedy on tv and i loved music um they were my as a teenager like, and apart from the policy i was quite very political when i was young um uh but the, my love of, of comedy i think i've put it back to the Cocoon. Although I, I used to listen to Radio 4 comedies as a small boy. Mm. I remember listening to Jimmy Clivero and things like that, the Clivero kid, um, round the horn. Uh, not have a, not, um, yeah. I'm sorry, I, I'll read that again. And things oh, yes. like that. All those yeah. great shows. Mm -hmm. uh, and then Cocoon was the book I read, the Spike Milligan book when I was about 13. And I just, well, I opened it all up for the goons and stuff like that. But it, as, a, as a teenager, 14, 15, it was Python. But even though I loved Python, and we used to go to school the next day and we'd be reciting everything we'd heard from Python. Even though I loved Python, I also loved Stepton Sound. I also loved the comedians. There yes. wasn't this artificial delineation that says, if you're, if you're a kid, you can't like older comics. Because I loved the older comics. Yes, I agree. If you like comedy, you like comedy. It's, exactly. it's, a, it's a funny or Yes. Yeah, exactly. If it makes you laugh. I remember Bob Monkhouse, uh, to return uh, to one of your great friends and my mentor, when I used to present jokes to him, or any writer would present jokes to him, uh, he would look at the joke and and he wouldn't say, is it funny? He'd never look at a joke and say, is that funny? He would look at a joke and say, will it get a laugh? Uh, and there's yeah. an essential difference, isn't there? Uh, yeah. Be because what you don't want is the crowd nodding to each other saying, that's, that's very witty, yes, yes. You want that great crack of laughter. And sometimes the joke it doesn't have to be logical to get the laugh. It, if it sounds funny, if it, if it can just the rhythm of it can carry it. Yes, it's also interesting that that some some 
maybe more traditional comics could say something which is manifestly unfunny but the crowd will laugh purely on trust because yeah. he's a yeah. funny man and he said something so therefore it must be funny i think it, yeah. was, it must be wonderful to be in that position we're going to move on to your your journalism how did you break in was it sounds magazine yeah, it was it sounds game? which was one of the great um rock press um staples of the 70s and 80s um i i had known fanzine and when I heard through the grapevine that they were looking for writers, I went in and had an interview with uh, Alan Lewis, the editor, and he, I showed him the stuff I'd done. He liked what I'd done. And he said, well, show me what you can do. So I went out for the next, I think, eight or nine, maybe ten nights, uh, seeing gigs, reviewing the gigs, and putting the reviews through the letterbox in Covent Garden, at Long Acre at Covent Garden, uh, the next morning. And after after that time, he rang me up and said, you got the job. And I didn't start as a freelance i went straight into a staff job what so that was a fan that was a fantastic uh, what was i 22 maybe oh so so you, you hit the ground running then from right from yeah. the get-go yeah so clearly there was there's an inherent talent but i suppose going to those clubs and watching those bands that was a labor of love really wasn't it fantastic i mean but at that time it's odd because at the time the enemy our great rival had said punk was dead in 1977 and i was going out and seeing fantastic bands every night and the ruts and the skids and the members and the uk subs i'm thinking well, how can how can they say punk's dead it's it's around us i mean one of the first gigs i saw was the specials doing their very first show as the specials um and you just thought, well, this is this chatting out a whole lot of fantastic talent by pretending it was gone and concentrating on whatever the latest trend was. So one of the first gigs you, you reviewed was the specials. Is that where you first formed your friendship with Neville Staple? Well, Neville was a roadie then, believe it or not. Oh, I didn't know He that. wasn't even in the band. This was in July 78, I think, and um, or June or July 78. It was the first date of the Clash tour because they were supporting the Clash. And that morning they'd been the Coventry Automatics, but the time they went on stage over the specials. And I remember meeting Neville then and, and getting on with Neville, but he didn't join the band full-time until the year after. Oh, I see. Good. Neville then went on to be one of the prime movers in the in, in, in that kind it's, of two-tone. Absolutely. Still going strong, still doing as much as he can all the time. Great man, Neville Staple. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um so after submitting your copy through the letterbox at Covent Garden, you were offered the job. Uh, yeah. So suddenly you're a, you're a staff member at one of the great rock magazines at the age of 22, looking around thinking, oh, this is, I'm sure, thinking this is brilliant. So what were the first um, staff gigs that you had to do? Well, the first review was that Clash one uh, mm -hmm. uh, with, with the specials. Um, but it took a while. I was, I was wrote about a lot of new bands who were coming through who we like, like the ones I mentioned, the members and the skids. Mm. It wasn't until I didn't meet, I started meeting people I grew up. That's the only time I got tongue-tied was when I met people who I adored when I was a kid. So when I met Phil Lennart for the first time, Phil Lennart for the first time, it was mm. just, wow. Uh, I couldn't speak for the first few minutes. Same with Debbie Harry. Couldn't speak for the first 30 seconds, or something, yeah. which is a bit, bit, uh, a bit of a, a dumb admission, but there you go. But Ozzy Osbourne, of all of them, he was the he was the greatest character of them all. Yeah. Now, did uh, did you know Ozzy when they started when he and Ian Geezer started Black Sabbath? Did you know at that time, or did, did I you know? Him I, no, I knew I knew him after they kicked him out of Black Sabbath. That's when I knew him. And <laughs> so, <laughs> but it was great because they kicked him out, and he should have been his career should have been over. And in fact, him and Sharon reinvented the whole thing and. Came at, you know, 
surpassed Black Sabbath in sales and popularity. Yes. He was a very, very dangerous man to be around. Um, yeah. He asked I, me to write his autobiography, and in the process, uh, he shaved my eyebrows off. I didn't realise it at the time because we'd been drinking for 12 hours, um, which is even more worrying when you think about it. I let him get that near my face with a razor blade after we'd been drinking. Before. But uh, I, didn't, I didn't know to my guitarist cut my door the next or two days later, I think, because I took it out of it for a day. Um, and he said, Gal, where's your, where's your eyebrows? And I looked in the mirror. And when, when I saw her, I, I was startled, but you couldn't tell. Um, what I what I was I was I was lucky though I was absolutely lucky because he set fire to people's hair the roadies he he piddled in their pockets he he had a hip full of aftershave which uh, sorry a hip flask of aftershave which he'd pass around (laughs) (laughs) telling people it was whiskey and the most unfortunate incident I remember before seeing his roadies was I was out with him in Florida and on it was the day before it was all over. It was the last night of the tour. And that morning, one of the roadies came to him and he was very, very worried because he'd realised he'd caught a social disease or, mm-hmm. and uh, didn't know how to cope with it because he was going home the day after. Uh, and as he very sagely stroked his chin and said, um, right, so what you need to do is to soak it in Domestus. Isn't that right, Gary? And I said, oh, yes. <laughs> well, we know he, we know he did, we know he did it because an hour later you could hear the screams from the floor below. And, and this is a man, by the way. This is a man who ended up doing a health advice column in the Sunday Times. So work it out. <laughs> that last day of the tour was mad because we had the, we had the gig, it was fantastic. We had the party afterwards. I had gone to bed. I conked out, and I was woken up about an hour later by what sounded like the Cuban army invading Florida. And it was Miami. It was with firecrackers going off. It was, but it was Aussie bombarding the hotel with the pyrotechnics left over from the tour. Extraordinary. So let's get this straight. So <laughs> Ozzy Osbourne is actually outside in the street in Miami, bombarding the hotel with firecrackers. Well, he's is out right? the back of the ho- he's out the back of the hotel, and all the pyrotechnics left over from the tour is using up. But when you're sleeping, <laughs> it's suddenly hear explosions of flashing lights. It's a bit dis- disconcerting. Well, it doesn't take long for the police to arrive. And then there was this. I was watching out the window, and over the hotel, I could see lights going on and off. As I think as the as the party moved from room to room, I'm not quite sure how it worked, but that's that's it was like the Keystone Cops. They ended up on Aussie's tour bus. And the police couldn't go on the tour bus for some state law, some local law. It was private property, so they weren't allowed on. But <laughs> so Rosie wasn't arrested. But <laughs> yeah, he was lucky not to be arrested. He was arrested a couple of days. Uh, next tour, when, it, when he, when he uh, piddled on the Alamo. Oh, yeah. oh. that was another time. Was that the, the, was it a Diary of a Madman tour? Yes. Was, yeah. Yes. I always struck me just ex- <laughs> brilliant. I've got to say brilliant, really, that, that, Ozzy Osbourne was uh, chucked out of Black Sabbath. I mean, you do think, well, that's like that's like being someone thrown out of the of the Spanish Inquisition for cruelty, you know. <laughs> Absolutely, thrown out for excess party. Exactly yeah. that, extraordinary. <laughs> and yet, I mean, you have a great affinity with Ozzy. You call your dog Ozzy, for goodness' yes, sake. Yes, of course. Yes, that tour with with Ozzy must have been incredibly not only influential from a being able to write a, the book, The Diary of a Madman, which is, well, that was Ozzy's biography. That's, that's the biography that he asked you to, to write, is it? 
Yeah, we never actually got done. I think I had a couple of chapters in it, but it just all got a bit messy. But he was like being around a stand-up comedian because he was funny all the time and outrageous all the time. And some of the things he did sound disgusting. If I was to tell you about the time we all got through out of a hotel, um, it, again in Florida, because he we got in and it, as, we, as, as Sharon was checking in, uh, Ozzy decided he needed um, a number two mm-hmm. uh, and rather than go looking for the cars he decided that he'd ashtray in the foyer would do you can understand it was not it was not always easy to be around God, yeah. um, i think the the, fu- the funniest time in england or the, the strangest time in england we, he, we were up in leicester and ozzy pulled the gig he said he'd had we'd had a, he'd, he'd had a dodgy hamburger or something and claimed he had food poisoning <laughs> so the gig was pulled but by five, by six o'clock, we were sitting in the hotel bar and everything was fine and we having a good time. And we, Sharon kept getting paged and then Ozzy was getting paged. And when they come to reception, and we completely ignored it. Well, about 90 minutes later, in walks Don Arden, Sharon's father, the, um, the Don Corleone of rock. Mm. <laughs> and he's exploded in rage because he was the promoter and Ozzy had pulled the gig for no real reason. Mm. So he's effing and blinding and telling people to go away and... And then a standing, blazing row. And then all of a sudden, Sharon put on that little girl voice that she does and said, Daddy, we're getting married. And I don't know to this day whether they actually were going to get married or whether she just came up with that to get Don off their back because Don's mood changed instantly. All of a sudden, Don was everyone's greatest friend. He's cuddling them, he's cuddling me, he's kissing me. I thought, what's going on here? <laughs> and we'd, we had a nice, Don and baby, they were brother. And we all sat there, we had another couple of drinks and about, I don't know, half 10, he thought David said it was time to go back to London. So they went off to London. Yeah. And I'm, I'm there sitting there with Sharon and Ozzy, just the three of us. Hmm. And Ozzy's drunk and bored. So he gets a, um, starts throwing bread rolls at some Japanese businessmen. So we stop him doing that. And then <laughs> two policemen in, in uniform turn up uh, in the foyer and he sees this and he, he starts getting a- very angry and saying, the filth, they shouldn't be here. <laughs> so he gets up to have a go at the police. So there's me on one arm and Sharon on the other to stop in Ozzy. <laughs> Some going and steaming into these innocent policemen and uh, ended up in jail. So I think we, we saved him for a night in the cells that night. God, are you still in contact with Ozzy from time to time? I saw Sh- last time I saw Sharon, she was very friendly. I mean, I haven't seen Ozzy since Los Angeles, two thousand and one. Oh, right. But, so quite a time. But he's, it's one of those friendships that if I saw if I saw him now, we'd just be having a we'd have a fantastic time talking about it. You know, it's like men. Yeah, you, you pick it up from where you left yeah. off in twenty years ago. Yeah. yeah, he lives the other side of the village. I've never seen him, but when he's in when he's in London, he's got a house uh, not far from us. Yeah. And it was it was there he had one of his many accidents. I think he fell off a, a quad bike or something and hurt his neck oh, or something. Right. And did he had he, it was a period in the late nineties as well with the same place, I think, where he was because Sharon told him he couldn't drink, he'd buried bottles of vodka around the carton and would oh my go out at night for a bit of fresh air. It strikes me that having listed your fascination with various forms of music, uh be it metal or Scar, or Hard Rock. It's very, and indeed the band you're with, which I'll come to in a moment, it's very beat-driven, isn't it? That's beat-driven, rhythm-driven music, pounding music is your yes. passion. Yeah, I think so. Although I've mellowed a lot in my old age. I've been known to listen to Miles Davis every now and then. Mm. 
Uh, and also, you have you have a soft spot for for country music. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that was my dad really more than anything. I uh, grew up listening to Johnny Cash and Marty Robbins and people like that. You were really into reggae long before reggae became fashionable. Long, long, really before um, Million, My Boy Lollipop, and Desmond Decker and the Aces and the Israelites. No, Millie was the that was the first record I ever bought. My Boy Lollipop. Oh wow! I remember buying that in Lewisham somewhere. I can't remember where. Yeah, um, yeah, and and by the time sixty nine seventy, that was when UK pop reggae was everywhere. And I'd be, I used to sort of DJ at family parties and play things like uh, Desmond Decker and Marsha, Bob and Marsha, and all that, mm. all that wonderful old. And did you ever meet David Ansel Collins? I know Dave Barker. Yes, oh, yes, wow. yeah. I have met him since. Yeah, I, I never met Ansel. Yeah. Oh, Monkey Spanner and all that wonderful, wonderful stuff. Extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, that that was at a time when it's it, it really took off with um, yeah. oh Elizabethan reggae and stuff like that. Did uh, and and then of course later the next generation, um, obviously the Specials, but also the Selector and Madness. And I went to the States with uh, the Selector on their tour. Um, in fact, I almost got them arrested. I almost got them. <laughs> I almost got them. I almost got them in. in, in, in uh, I almost got them wrapped up in a, a dangerous situation because we were in Dallas, and it was my dumb idea. I said, "Well, hey, Southfork Ranch is, is down the road. Why don't we go get some pictures there?" Everyone thought it was a great idea. What's and we that? Get there. What's we, that? The Southfork Ranch from Dallas. You know, from Dallas. Oh, I saw Southfork. Yeah, I understand. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry, Southfork. Sorry, mm. my addiction. Um, and uh, we got down there uh, and we all posing about and making jokes about Miss Ellie and all that sort of stuff. And well, we'd done the pictures, but then all of a sudden this Jeep turned up full of really angry Texans, all of whom had baseball bats and none of them seemed to have a ball. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but luck luckily, I mean, they were really, I mean, it was, they, it, they were a bit, I think they'd just seen a load of black people and thought, the worst you know mm. uh, luckily our tour driver was a, a, a southern gentleman and he was out to have a word of him but the the n-word was heard it got a bit harrowing to be honest really oh he's nasty yeah and yet you, you've always had a great affinity with black musicians oh loved yeah yeah always i mean that, that was the first music i was really into of my own you know reggae and um tamla motown mm. yes and x well, I could start going through the old catalogue now. Yeah, all of it. I'm, I'm really, I'm fascinated by reggae and ska. You never, I, I'll ask you this, cold. You, you, did you ever see or meet uh, Bob Marley? No. Okay. No, but Danny Baker did. Oh. And Danny, Danny played. Could Bart Marley was a a, um, a a football fanatic, and I think Danny was in a team that took on the Whalers, and the Whalers were a fantastic football team, mm. and. Danny tackled Bob, um, and there was a rumour around the internet that he was responsible for Bob dying because the injury from the foot caused the cancer or something. It wasn't true, but it was hmm. an internet rumour. Uh, yeah, Bob was a real aficionado of, 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 the, of the beautiful game. How extraordinary. Hmm. I'd like your good self because I understand that you follow Charlton. <laughs> Suffer Charlton, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sticking with music then, you you suddenly, you're writing about music, uh, you've become an authority on various genres. Uh, at what point did you decide that you wanted to be a music manager, manage groups, bands? Well, I didn't really decide it. It was I was sort of conned into it by the Cockney Rejects, who 
they met me in a pub and told me, well, essentially, I won't go into the, the long details of it, but um, they weren't quite as developed as a band as they said they were. They didn't have a drummer for a start. And when we got them in the studio, they turned up without the drummer and claimed the drummer had had a, a car crash. And so the, the engineer had to go in and, and play the drums. But um, they never actually had a drummer at that point. They were just... <laughs> just uh, but I just learned everything about them. I loved the fire in their belly. And uh, uh, and they said, we want you, can you manage us? And I thought, well, we'll give it a go. I had no pretensions to be a manager. And um, with the help of Jimmy Percy, who I took into the meeting, I managed to get them a four album, £125,000 advance in 1979, which I think was quite a lot of money in 79. Wow. And I think probably yeah. if I'd been a better manager or if I had any experience at all, I probably could have got more. But they just seemed to be happening. And then I realised I didn't really know enough about the business to carry on managing it. And so I foolishly decided that the, they needed to have a proper manager and got them involved with Cham's manager, who was Tony Gordon. But he had really had no experience of bands like that. And it, it wasn't the best company. Coupling, yeah, diplomatic on being here. <laughs> yes, yes, I, I I spotted that. Tell me about, did you manage a band called The Blood? The Blood from Charlton, they were a wonderful band. They were a shock rock band. Um, I, I, managing The Blood was like trying to lasso lightning because <laughs> they just did not want to tour. They were brilliant musicians and the songs were great, but they thought that it could all be scammed. And I said to them, like, the age of scam is gone. The Pistols have done it. Spando Ballet have done it. You've got to, you've got to deliver now. People want bands that can go out and deliver. And we got them. Um, I got them a, a tour bus for a tour. Set up a tour. Got them a tour bus, a truck, uh, and sent them out on the road. However, before it even started, as soon as I got the truck, they've spray painted obscenities, which I won't repeat, but all over the side of it, terrible obscenities. And they had one of those tailgates at this thing, so. On the motorway, there was out the back over this tailgate, weeing and piddling on the um, mm. on the M1 and things like that. Because they would rather have got arrested and spent a night in the cells than actually go out and do any gigs. And that was what I was up against. And when I did get them a gig, I mean, some of the, the, the right, uh, two gigs here were, were disastrous in a way, in different ways. Firstly, I got them in Walthamstow Royal Standard headline. Great. Got down there and I said, right, who's your designated driver tonight? And they pointed at this fella under a table, completely comatose, and said, he is. <laughs> and then, and then, um, and then um, Jamie, the, gar the guitarist, said, Gal, you're the most sober, so you better drive us home. Oh, God. So not only, all right, I was over the limit a bit, but I'd never driven that sort of vehicle. I was used to an automatic transmission. So I'm driving a, a, a lorry for the first time. He's changing the gears for me, Jamie, who's as mm. drunk as a thousand sailors. <laughs> In the event we went over a roundabout, and when I say over a roundabout, I mean physically over the top of a roundabout, not round it at all. <laughs> Somehow I got them back from Walthamstow to Shooters Hill. <laughs> Never again am I doing that. Oh my um, <laughs> that was typical. That was typical. And I got them on the headline in the marquee. Headline in the marquee, they got a blow-up doll from one of the local shops um, in Soho and filled it up with butcher's offal. Took to the took to the stage through this terrible song, the shock rock song, and he's got the, the singer Colin. So he's got the electric chainsaw, takes it to the doll, and so the front rows of this packed audience are showered with raw butchers off, and you'll be surprised here. We got banned for life from the marquee. 
So they were they were a danger when they weren't touring because they wouldn't nothing could come of it, and they were a danger when they were touring. So it was just <laughs> you couldn't really win with the blood. Gosh, I mean. It strikes me that your entire music career, you've been <laughs> flying by the seat of your pants and, and evading arrest. Looking Absolutely. Over your shoulder. Uh, Absolutely. I, I, mean, I, I mean, did they ever actually physically land you in trouble with the police, the shenanigans? I was writing Iron Maiden's book. So this was 1984, or maybe, yeah, towards the end of 1984, or maybe 85, I can't remember now, but around that time. And I'm sitting indoors writing, and I'm in a writing mode knock on the door and it's two gentlemen from Essex CID and they said um, uh, Mr Bush I said yeah I said uh, can we come in and have a look around the premises I said yeah sure what are you looking for I said we can't tell you that sir mm-hmm. so they're in my living room they're looking behind the settee they're looking under the settee they're looking in drawers they're looking in the kitchen again they're looking in the drawers cupboards under the sink can they go upstairs certainly they went upstairs they're looking in uh, the children's uh, toy cupboard they're looking under our bed and then I said look come on tell me what you're looking for I might be able to help you and reluctantly he said he told me that Motorhead had this stage bomber hmm. uh, it was a, a scale down Lancaster bomber with a 20 foot wingspan and it had been stolen and someone had told them <laughs> that I had this thing I said and you're looking under the bed <laughs> and he's gone well you could have dismantled it so and I said yeah the bed would have hit the ceiling what are you on about <laughs> and then he's gone have you got any outbuildings I said, well I've got a garage and you can see like electric bulbs lighted up in their head mm. it's like we've got him it's in the garage we've got him it's in the garage and I take him down to the garage and they're standing one each side of this double fronted garage and got him he's in the garage they're pulling it open they're pulling it open all that was in there was my little girl's tricycle. <laughs> and so he's gone, oh, he said, uh, we'll be back, sir. And I never heard from him again. I don't so, of course, I again. needless to say, I had nothing to do with the theft of this massive black bomb. <laughs> I certainly never ran it behind me at any time. That was it, the worst it got. I think. It, was, so, it was bonkers hijinks all the time, wasn't it? I mean, just... <laughs> Absolutely. And then now, well, it's, in some ways, it was a great preparation for show business because when I then had to interview people and work with people like Freddie Starr, well, yeah. were they any worse than Ozzy Osbourne and Richie Blackmore? I think there's less, yeah. less threat to the health. That's the truth. But surely working with the Maiden uh, and writing their book must have been a more, in comparison, a more sedate affair. Well, you'd think you that, know, wouldn't you? Bruce is an airline pilot, isn't he? And all that kind of stuff. Bruce Dickinson, he flies... Bruce Dickinson is the man who tried to kill me twice. Well, no, he didn't try to kill me. He almost killed me. But when I was out there in Florida doing that book with Maiden, Bruce had taken me and my then life out for a drive in a little convertible, having a great time, a lovely little drive, hot day, wonderful. He'd forgotten he was in America and went up the exit road from a four-lane motorway. What? And so all of a sudden we've gone up the exit road into four lanes of traffic and he's had to, <laughs> everyone's had to break. There was no collisions, but <laughs> it was very close. <laughs> the heart was in my and A couple of years later, I'm in Dortmund with them and Bruce again, spe- this time spectacularly drunk. We're being driven away from the Dortmund Rock Festival. And he decides it'd be a very funny idea to throw the car we were driving on the Autumn in into reverse. <laughs> so once again, chaos is ensued. Ensued, and um, we survived. survived. I survived with my life, but only just. So no, Maiden weren't really much, <laughs> much tamer, to be honest. Oh, that's interesting. I, I, I didn't because because you know you read about Bruce. He, as I say, he's got a 
he can pilot a seven four seven. He's an airline yeah. pilot, and he's got a, a simulator business. And you think, well, you know, you've got to be, you've got to have your head together to to do that kind of stuff. Oh, very bright man, yeah. But don't forget, everyone was drinking a lot back then. Yeah, of and, course. <laughs> enjoying the first fruits of stardom, really. Mm. But I remember you telling me a hundred years ago that they were very into football. They liked playing football. Oh yeah, Maiden still got their own football team. Yeah. Oh, I never very, knew very that. Good. And Def Leppard, the same. Though. Massive football enthusiast. Maiden, of course, West Ham. Because they, they were all East End boys, weren't they? Yeah. And oddly enough, it was it was Black Sabbath who were very Birmingham based. With Tommy was Birmingham based. Ozzy came from Birmingham. I don't know if Geezer Geezer was Birmingham yeah, yeah, too. Yeah, they're all Brammers, Yeah. So they're all all these bands are sort of come together from the same area. Yeah, they they're all very working class. That's the thing, isn't it? And I I I, I just love that. I, I love working class folk breaking out. Uh, and on, doing well, yeah, and, and on on their own merit and with their own talent. I just think that's great. Uh, speaking of talent, the gonads. <laughs> the, the Where's go- the talent now? Go, go on. The, the the punk rock band that you still front. You've been going for I want to say ten years. Forty four years of failure, sir. <laughs> okay, nineteen seventy seven to now, but we stopped a few times. We've been yeah. consistently going um, since the eighties, late eighties. Early 90s. And churning out albums, too. I say churning. I don't mean that in a form of disrespect. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but but you've been producing albums on a consistent basis. 15 albums. I think 15 studio albums. Now, I should explain the, the gonads. Uh, you're the lead singer and the and the instigator. You are the I guess you're the Ozzy Osbourne and the Bruce Dickinson <laughs> of the gonads. Um, and so who, who else is in the lineup at the moment? Uh, the Clyde Ward. Uh the great Clyde Ward, mm. uh, who I wrote the songs with, um, uh, Phil McDermott on guitar, uh, JC, James Crutwell on bass, um, Paul Mummery, uh, also known as Paul Scarnad on drums, and uh, the delectable uh, Shona Watsy Watts on backing vocals. <clears throat> Not being rude to Clyde uh, and the guys, but you, you see them on stage and you think, I don't know how... I really would want to meet you guys down at LA One on a dark night coming towards me. <laughs> and that's just Shona. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're all lovely. They're lovely guys. Honestly, they're lovely people. Yes. I, I, I know they are. It's just that, that image that they portray is just extraordinary. I think it's just brilliant. Well, we, like, we, we do seem to attract madder people, though. And, and the, the maddest thing we ever went through was that first American tour, which I think was... 98 january 98 i think it was uh where we ended the first gig we played was in newark and they stuck the the tour promoter stuck us into this motel it was a sort of motel where they looked at you a bit strange if you actually stay in the night because it was only used by the hour by adulterous couples or or women on the game basically hey what were you want you want it for the night are you mad <laughs> <laughs> so we stayed in this grotty hotel and the first thing they said to us was don't leave the hotel on foot. And I thought, what are you talking about? Don't leave the hotel on foot. I'm going to find a bar. So I got off on my own, wandering up, wandering up the street. First corner I get to, there's a fresh body chocolate outline. <laughs> oh, Christ. Oh okay. God. I'm going back now. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, back. that was nothing. Because when we got to Los Angeles, we played with a clipper club in Los Angeles. And the guy on the door said, um, this sounds like a joke. I promise you it's not. A, he actually said this. Have you got any weapons? Do you want any? <laughs> oh and then he God. said, there's a lot of drive-by shootings, and we found this out because the, the shop opposite was actually covered, riddled in bullet uh, holes, wow. and all the windows were all 
metal grills up and everything. And he said, uh, um, if you hear a gunshot tonight when you're on stage, just drop to the floor. I said, drop to the floor? I'll be out the bloody door. <laughs> I tell you, that was the fastest gig we ever played. I think we did a 40-minute set in about 25 minutes. <laughs> bang, bang, bang. <laughs> Didn't need the speed. <laughs> yeah, that, so that was the sort of craziness we encountered out there. Uh, uh, didn't you? On that, was it on that tour that you played the Johnny Depp's Viper Room? Oh, no, that was more recently. That was 2017, November 2017. That was probably one of the best gigs we ever did. That was great. I do a song called Buy Me a Drink, You Bastards, which mm. is about people who don't buy you know, round dodges, essentially. Mm. And we did this this song. And as I came off the stage, no less than four Americans turned up with very generous, large, large scotches. Amazing. As a thank you for the gig. And I thought that was very kind of them. All just punters, you know. It's important to point out for, for people that don't know that the gonads actually in Europe and in America are a very highly prized punk rock band. You're revered in the punk rock. Um, well, you are. Sometimes that reverence takes the wrong shape. Can I give you an example? When we played um, Torgau in uh, Saxony a few years ago, well, about 10 years ago, I think, we were on the bill with a Spanish band and a young Spanish band in their 20s. And they, they called me the godfather of street punk. Um, and these, these young boys, I was sitting backstage having a beer, just relaxing after the show. And these band, boys came up, the Spanish boys, they spoke English, but I spoke Spanish. And they said, we want to pay our tribute to the godfather. And their idea of paying me a tribute was to stand around. Was, I'm sitting down. They stood around me in a semicircle and dropped their trousers and pants. I thought, well, thank you very much. Please stop really dis- Haven't you got any sisters? Come on. What? Why, Why is that a tribute? Extraordinary display of reverence. <laughs> a display of gonads. Yeah, maybe it was there. Yes, <laughs> Your association with dangerous people has then bled into for want of a better expression, the entertainment world, because then your interest in music then inspired this revival of a fascination with entertainment. So how did you get into becoming an entertainment journalist, away from uh, becoming a rock journalist? Well, I'd I'd, I'd rather foolishly left sounds, and I wrote the Iron Maiden book. And then I thought, oh, what am I going to do now? <laughs> and again, uh, through the business, I heard that there were uh, the bizarre column were looking for people to come and do shifts. And so I, I did two days uh, at the Sun's Bizarre column when it was in Boothry Street and thought, well, this is going to be two, it'll be two days and that'll be the end of it. <laughs> and it ended up, um, uh, I did two two shifts on the Sun and then I got a call, do you want to do Evening Standard Ad Lib column? So I did the Ad Lib column. Then it was at the, Daily Mirror for six weeks over the summer. Then the sun said, well, can you come and do, we give you a six-month contract, come and work for us. And it was while that, that six-month contract was on that um, they had the Zeebrugge ferry disaster. Hmm. And I came up with the idea of doing the Let It Be charity single, which raised a million quid and got to number one for three weeks, I think. Uh, so that fantastic publicity for the sun as well as being a good cause. It wasn't designed as publicity for the sun, but that's how it played out. And yeah, it said, well, I've got to give you a job now. <laughs> <laughs> rather reluctantly i felt but he did so i got that job and i was sort of ended up running the bizarre column but it's interesting now some of the old contacts still came in were not useful it took me in different directions because i was approached by wilf pine who was the former manager of black Sabbath. yes yes but yes. also notoriously the only english man to become a member of the gambino family of the mafia 
<laughs> so <laughs> Wilf approached me and uh, on the music from the music level and said, "Did I want to come into Broadmoor and meet Ronnie Cray? Ronnie wanted me to go and meet him, and Wilf was the middleman. So Wilf took me down and I met, I met Ronnie Cray for the first time, for the first of about six or seven times, I think. And I did an interview with Ronnie, but he kept inviting me back down, uh, and he was always fine. He was always chatty and friendly." Uh, uh, much friendlier than Reggie, and Ronnie was the one that was supposed to be mad. Um, but he'd sit, he'd always dressed immaculately, lots of lots of rings on, uh, suit and tie. Uh, he'd drink um, Kestrel, and he'd, at the end, the last time I went there, I remember him saying, um, asking me, Gary said, "Do you know little Kylie Minogue?" And I didn't say yes because I didn't, but I just sort of nodded. And he said, "Do you think you could get Kylie to come and visit me?" I said, "Well." I try my best, Ron, but I'm not sure. Uh, and he goes, he starts singing, I should be so lucky, lucky, lucky. And I thought to myself, I must be the only man alive who's heard Ronnie Cray singing the Kylie Minogue song. <laughs> and that was the last time I saw him. Wow. Yeah. I, I suppose the charisma is the, the word I'm reaching for. I don't know if it's right. But suddenly you're sitting in the same room as 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 Ronnie Cray. Not only Ronnie Cray, because when I got there with, with uh, Wilf, he... Before Ronnie turned up, he um, tapped me on and said, in a minute, have a look behind, who's behind you. I looked behind me. Uh, it was the, the Yorkshire Ripper with his mum. Sutcliffe. Sutcliffe. Peter Sutcliffe, yeah. Holy And then, then Ronnie Cray turns up. Lucky Jimmy Savile word about me. Really. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't even fucking say it. <laughs> Extraordinary. Gee, yeah. God. But it, it, Ronnie was, it did have a charisma and he was... Uh, he seemed to have a sense of humour. When I saw Reg in Leicester Gartry, he was much more formal. He had a list of things he wanted to talk about, and he stuck to the list. And when he'd gone through the list, that was the end. Bye-bye. Very, bye. very professional. Yeah. Yeah. But Ronnie wanted to gossip. And he got, had involved with different people when he tried to influence their careers on the outside and stuff like that. So, um, um, yeah, he was, he, he, was, he was fun. Actually, believe it or not, for a murderer, he was fun to be around. <laughs> we talked then about dangerous people you've been involved with, entertainment industry, and I'm thinking of Freddie Starr. I mean, uh, when we were doing the live froms or whenever I was at Central, everyone used to say, don't meet his gaze. He's like a snake. If you, if you yeah. make eye contact, he's got you. Yeah. And of course, the, the 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 time he really got me was that audience with when I was. Funny enough, they used Dale Winton, my friend of mine, as a a, a conduit to me. Dale mm -hmm. said, "Come to the Freddie audience with." He said, "I'll make sure you're okay." I thought it was a strange thing to say, actually. In retrospect, it was a strange thing to say. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, and I went. I went with my mate, and we were sitting down near the front. Um, and I had no idea that I was going to be part of the show. So when Freddie's picked on me when I did meet his gaze and he picked me and he pulled me out of the audience and suddenly I'm I'm strapped up against that and blindfolded mm. I genuinely thought the knife I didn't know how the knife act worked I genuinely thought he was throwing knives at me so was, you were strapped to a board I was strapped to a board blindfolded and Freddie's throwing. at one stage he tried to undo my trousers but I weren't having that not with Janet <laughs> Street in the audience <laughs> she might <have> got excited <laughs> No, but it was. In fact, he left me there for ten minutes at the end. I know it might be fifteen. <laughs> in fact, all the rest of the show, I'm just standing there, just bored. And then um, I was uh, Nigel Lifko, the great Nigel Lifko, decided that um, I should get my own back in, a, in when he did another audience with Freddie Star. And so we did this stunt. We practiced this stunt where I would turn, I would get Freddie in a straight jacket and locked up like um, Hannibal Lecter mm. in in one of those 
masks. Metal, metal masks, all mm. that sort of business. Uh, but on the night of that show, Freddie lost confidence in the new material, deserted the new material, and just did his blue comedy act, his adult comedy act. Yeah. And N- Nigel was absolutely furious. He just got completely off script and just did his act. Mm. Uh, I think they made something of it, but none of the new tricks were involved and certainly not my bit. Mm. So a bit later on, I got the call from Freddie. Would I go and do it for a DVD? So I would put him in a VHS video then. Mm -hmm. So I did that. So I actually got the shot and we actually did the, uh, we did the trick, but um, yeah, he, he was odd because naively until you know comedians, you think they're going to be the same off stage as they are on. Mm. It's only after you start working with them, you realize that quite a lot of them are very neurotic and Freddie was, Without doubt, the most neurotic of them all. He was when you when I interviewed him the first time, he seemed suicidal. He just seemed so down, and I didn't know then that obviously he was doing large quantities of barbiturates and yeah. and uppers. Mm. With Freddie, I've got an echo of a memory of of maggots being involved. That was the second. Ah, yeah, that was the second one. With oh, was it that? No, you're right. There were there were maggots that weren't maggots the first time but there were maggots that were real maggots the second time it got mm. nastier the second time yeah because that's why i could faith brown's cleavage received an ample portion of them if i recall <laughs> so your antenna for mischief and uh, spotting mischief must be fairly attuned now you, you... yeah but having said that i didn't spot it when john blake who was the mirror showbiz editor at the time set me up with the world champion boxer <laughs> Did you oh know that God. story? Um, it's, um, I've got an echo of a memory of, of Lloyd Hunnigan being involved. This is Lloyd Hunnigan. Yeah, I was supposed to be fighting um, a journalist from the Mirror. And, I thought, and I'd, I'd been trained up. I'd had training from Glenn Murphy from London's Burning and his dad, who Terry Murphy, who boxed for England. And I was quite confident I'd hold my own with this guy. Mm. And when I got in the ring, I was a bit surprised to see, actually, I was supposed to be fighting Blake. But then I thought that Blake was going to substitute himself for the guy from the mirror. Yeah. Because I saw Blake in the tuxedo. And I thought, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I heard the Rocky music playing mm-hmm. and this big guy coming out with two even bigger black trainers. And I thought, even then I thought, oh, it's Frank, Frank Bruno. It'd be fine. Because mm-hmm. I knew Frank and I thought Frank's a laugh. Mm-hmm. When he took his mask off and he wasn't that big actually, and it was <laughs> Lloyd Anakin. Mm-hmm. He was, by the way, he was six weeks away from a world title fight with Bumpfus, Johnny, Johnny Bumpfus. And he took the mask off and he glared at me and I sort of smiled and he wasn't having none of it. And when it started, he was, it was for real. <laughs> oh, Christ almighty, what am I doing? And I did a couple of jab and, you know, jab and move, jab and move and all that. And all of a sudden, bush, 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 he's gone through. He hit me on the chest and I was on the deck. Wow. I think that was the end of round one. And um, I've come into my corner and Glenn Murphy said to me, Right, he said, in round two, what you got to do? I said, what do you mean? I'm not going back in there. <laughs> but he said, no, he said, no, it'll be all right. Yeah, somebody got the Lloyd in the, and said, this guy's not got a license. If you hit him again and he gets reported, you'll lose your license. So in the next round, he very graciously let it look like I was hurting him. Oh. <laughs> and so I, I went two rounds of it, uh, which is all I had to do, and got 500 quid for help the aged, I think. So it was worth it. Oh, it was well worth it. It's a noble cause. It's worth yeah. taking a beating from, from Lloyd Hunnigan. But when I see Lloyd years later at an audience with, I reminded him and he laughed. And he said, oh, he said, what happened was, he said, um, you, you were a big fellow, he said, and Lloyd, Lennox Lewis was about. And um, I thought, well, you look, you're as big as Lewis. Maybe you're hit like Lewis. Mm. And I, I took that until I realised that Lennox Lewis wasn't even around 
Annie Lennox was. I wouldn't mind fighting her. But, <laughs> <laughs> but Lennox, no. <laughs> the newspaper column, Bushel on the Box, where you review uh, television programmes with, with enormous honesty, I always think. Um, has that ever come back to bite you more recently? Because uh, you're doing big-name interviews. And do you find yourself now in a situation where you're interviewing somebody and you remember 15 years ago you gave them a stinking review do they remember well, and do you remember it, not not recently but it definitely happened in the early 90s because um i went down i was sent down by the sun it would have been to interview les dennis hmm. when i met les a lovely man he was a bit off i thought who's upset him and it became very apparent it was me <laughs> because apparently in the column I'd given him the name Les Dennis with an extra S and, and said that um, Russ Abbott needed an operation to have him removed from his back. <laughs> and um, Les walked off and didn't feel enough. Okay, fair enough. He came back in the end and did it. He was fine. He was a fuck. I'd, I'd forgotten. That's the trouble. You, I'm writing a, a lot of words. Mm. And so back then it would have been probably 1,100, 1,300 words a week. Uh, yeah. And you're writing it, and then once the column's done, you're on to the next column. You don't you'd have to have a fantastic memory, which I haven't got to remember everything you'd ever written. So I'd forgotten the whole less than his business. <laughs> Obviously, Les hadn't. He's the sweetest of men. He is a lovely man. But Matt, Matt Berry was the same. I met Matt Berry in Shoreditch. He said, oh, yeah, you reviewed me. I said, did I? I'd completely forgotten. He said, yeah, he, some show he'd done on Channel 4. And he said, yes. you had, you said two words, not funny. I said, oh, did I? But again, Matt was fine. He just thought it was, but they, you just, that made me realise how if you're the, on the, the victim of that sort of review, you remember. Yes. You, you might not remember the good reviews, but you certainly remember the bad reviews. You do. Absolutely. You could you get glowing, glowing wall-to-wall praise and just a, 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 little, a little remark which is in the negative, and that's the one that stands out, isn't it? I could, I could actually quote you a whole paragraph from the loaded review on a nuts review, one one of those magazines of Bushel on the Box, <laughs> which likened my ITV Bushel on the Box show to uh, something like a like a small, dirty cockroach hanging about outside a Chinese restaurant late at night. <laughs> That's how it started. <laughs> that was, and we'd let him come in. We'd be show, we'd giving him drinks. We'd let him talk to everybody. Like, Thanks very much. <laughs> Yeah, but it's it's interesting that you remember that. You remember those words yeah, as well. Exactly, yeah. They get ingrained yeah. into your psyche, don't they? I remember that you had been less than flattering to <laughs> our mutual friend, Mr. Dale Winton. I think it maybe it's pertinent to his performance on Supermarket Sweep. Uh, you'd been less than flattering. And then I remember at Central Television, when we were doing <laughs> Celebrity Squares, you were one of the guests. Uh, and I was in the corridor with you. And I actually saw your face when you saw... Coming up the corridor, the aforementioned Mr. Dale Winton, with a, a face rather resembling thunder, and, and your face thinking, oh, my Lord, it's Dale Winton. It's going to kick off, yeah. Yeah. But that begat an extraordinary friendship, didn't it? We, did, we became very good friends. We met up on holiday, even, and uh, he was godfather to my uh, middle daughter. Yeah, we, we knew Dale really well, and it was such a terrible shame when we lost him. Yeah, oh my God, wasn't it? And such a surprise too. He came on Bush on the Box, the skit we did where he took me out in Sidcup telling me how to pull <laughs> women. Ah, yes. <laughs> it's a bit madness. This, this, this I should point out was a show that I, it's a television show that I used to watch 
when I was doing the two o'clock in the morning feed, uh, for, I think for Mark, uh, I, I would get up and do the two o'clock feed, and I would so Marky, I'd have Marky in the um, in the lounge changing him, giving him the two o'clock feed, and I would watch Bushel on the Box at two o'clock because Bushel on the Box was a television version on ITV uh, through the night uh, of your television column, but. Rather than critiquing shows, you actually uh, lampooned them, pastiche them, and actually, it was geared really towards entertaining the viewer at that 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 time of the morning, wasn't it? Yes, uh, yeah. We we um, first I think went out at midnight, um, mm. and we were number one on the ITV Night Network, and we got a million viewers at midnight. And at one stage in the central region, we recorded a sixty-eight percent viewing share. So we. It was pretty good, pretty successful, um, which is amazing when you think how little they, they got it for. It was done for tuppence. I mean, I think the the, product, the whole budget, including my fee, was a £1,000. So that's for the budget for the crew, for the mixing, everything, the editing. Wow. <laughs> and and that explains why you did for it for your series. house. Yeah, they did it in my house. It's the second series. I They, they paid us a location fee. Mm. Uh, and we got, I got a little bit more money, and we, got, and we had money to pay for a certain Mr. Edmonds to come in as um, very helpfully writing the Bushside soap parody for us for the second series. Oh, I'd forgotten that. Gee, you've forgotten that, don't yes, you? Oh my gosh! <laughs> and when you're busy, it all kind of blurs in. But um, you used to get an awful lot of big name guests through the door, didn't you? It was incredible because you could you could be cynical and say, well, they wanted to keep in with the sun but i don't think it was that because you know we're talking about a midnight show not the biggest audience in the world so yeah. to have the, the 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 number of fantastic guests who did it for me for nothing because there was no fees involved everyone from bob monkhouse um bradley walsh joe pasquale several times mm. uh we had um, Barbara, Barbara came. Barbara in, Windsor she? came in. And some really st- Bob did some really stupid sketch. I just written in five minutes and just uh, he, great sports playing along with his nonsense. Um, uh, Penn and Teller were on it. Um, Lily Savage was on it. Hmm. Uh, Vic and, and 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 also people like um, Lenny McLean. But of all of all of those people, didn't Bushel on the Box inspire Harry Hill? Am I right in thinking? Inspire Harry Hill to develop and uh, create TV Burp? Well, so he said. Yeah, he said it several times. Um, and also standing in for me doing the Bushel on the Box column, he did that as well, as Bob did and Chris Tarrant did. Uh, but, yeah, he's, he's said that a few times. And I loved Harry Hill's TV Burp. Absolutely brilliant. He had, um, obviously, a, a, a massive budget compared to ours and a, a whole team of writers. So... Mm. But I'm not uh, denigrating it in any way. It's one of my favourite shows. Oh, it was essential viewing, wasn't mm. it? And, and Harry's just Harry's surreal approach is just glorious. I think lovely, love it. Yeah, I'm minded of of when you were doing Men and Motors, I think, up at Granada, <laughs> at the yeah. same time as I was working for Bob on a date, a lunchtime quiz show called Wipeout, and. In Manchester, up at Granada in Manchester. I remember, okay, two parts of this story. The first part is Bob say, Bob saying, right, we're in Manchester. He said, we have to go to the greatest Chinese restaurant in the Northwest. He said, it's, I think it's called Noble House. So we got the taxi there. He said, I haven't been here for 15 years. He said, I hope it's just as good. And we walked through the door uh, and there was a waitress with her back to us. 
and he said, Hi, Chrissy, how are you? And she turned round. Mr. Monkhouse, how nice to see you. Now, he'd remembered that waitress from 15 years ago as being Chrissy. I mean, that was the wow. nature of the man. Yeah, it's extraordinary. So we spin forward a couple of weeks or so, and you're up. Um, Bob sees you uh, in the canteen at Granada and says, come out for dinner. We've got to go to this Chinese restaurant. And I think Ricky Jay was with you at the time, uh, the great comedian Ricky Jay. And we all went out to the Noble House restaurant. There was a, a beggar by the side of the entrance. And Bob gave him a couple of quid as he went in. Uh, and the beggar said, thank you, Governor. And then he looked at you and he said, oh, Gary Bushell. <laughs> yeah, I remember, I remember Bob, that. Yeah. Bob saying, I can't believe this. I've just given the man money and he's totally ignored me and he's recognised Bushell. <laughs> <laughs> that happened a lot back then. Um, it did happen a lot. I, I remember being on, queuing up for a Virgin flight in LA and being two people ahead of Bill Wyman. Oh, and yeah. the guys walked past Wyman and come over and started shaking my hand. I thought, hold on, there's a proper star there. What are you doing? <laughs> it's extraordinary. The worst one, the worst one though, was um, uh, my friend Gary Johnson, the poet. He took me. We were in a working man's club in, in Basildon. And a woman's kept looking at me and looking at me. And she's in the end, she's come over. She's quite an attitude. She goes, you think you look like him, but you ain't. I said, sorry. She said, you think you look like Gary Bushel, but you ain't. I see you signing on with, last week in Romford wearing a motorbike jacket. So no, is it not me? I'm signing on and riding a bloody motorbike. What's going on here? The thing, when you get your photograph in the newspaper on a weekly basis, your your image does kind of get burned into the psyche. Yeah. Uh, and and yeah. so uh, do you find that now, that when you're travelling the trains, not necessarily now because of lockdown, but do you find now that you're constantly badgered by, by folk in a way that journalists aren't necessarily... That sort of necessarily happens to journalists. I've got I've got the curse of being recognisable without having the money to make me safe. <laughs> no, in fact, in fact, people are really nice, absolutely really nice. I mean, even last week I was walking Aussie down uh, down to the park, and uh, a woman looked at me and said, "You're Gary Bush." You know, I said, "Yeah." Thinking, here we go, and she went, "Um, I used to love your show." I thought, "Oh, that's nice." Mm. And if you do get that, I mean, mm. the worst thing is though when you get mistaken. For, I mean, <laughs> I had a bus driver stop absolutely stop and call me over and ask for an autograph and he said I've always wanted to meet you Matthew he thought it was Matthew Kelly <laughs> what? <laughs> what? That's, that's excellent oh. tonight Matthew I shall be Matthew <laughs> Kelly <laughs> exactly <laughs> so you're so you're still so you've appeared on television as a TV talent show judge uh, when you worked with uh, Jonathan Ross that's on right. the name of the yeah. show, which you'll remind me in a minute. Big, big Talent Show. The Big, Big Talent Show. And you've also graced the stage on that great in that great British entertainment institution, uh, Pantomime. You, st- you, you were in Panto with Bradley down at Wimbledon, I remember. Uh, so what's it like being an entertainment performer? I mean, I, w- I know you wouldn't say that's your forte, but suddenly you're on stage and you're working to get laughs suddenly suddenly the shoes on the other foot is what i guess what i'm trying to say is suddenly you're realizing what it's like to be an entertainer does that inform yeah. your um your reviews and your attitude towards performers oh of course um and, and you know you realize how much goes into stuff but uh and how much training is involved and how much people care about it 
being good. That's sure. There's some funny stories from that panto. Though. Not that panto particularly. The um, the first one I did was with Bobby Daver and Ross Kemp. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is more about how mad soap fans are because I was sitting there again with Gary Johnson having a, a drink before the show started. And a Cockney lady came up to us. He goes, you know Grant, don't you? I said, well, I know Ross who plays Grant. Yeah, she said, what that Sharon's done to him? <laughs> that bitch, that cow. And she just was unable to separate the fact that Ross Kemp, the actor, was not Grant Mitchell. <laughs> and this is, this is mad. I was actually looking around for beadle cameras. Yes. Right? Genuinely thought, uh, I genuinely thought it was a, a setup of some kind. Could I had a few setups? I had mm. obviously Noel Edmonds and things like that. Yeah, Noel Edmonds was that was the most extraordinary thing, wasn't it? <laughs> didn't didn't they fly you out to America? We out to Los Angeles, upper class British mm. Airways. It was the best flight I've ever had. This was for the late late break. No, this was for Noel's <laughs> house party. It was a gotcha, wasn't it? For the gotcha Oscar, as it used to be called before he was not allowed to say Oscar anymore. And yeah, t- and uh, tell tell me about the setup though, because that's well, fascinating. The setup, the setup was really, when you think about it, quite absurd. <laughs> I was supposed to be going out to interview Terry Hatcher, who was Lois Lane in uh, in, in Clark. Lois and Clark. And in my opinion at the time, probably the most beautiful woman in the world. So it was no hardship for me. Oh. It's certainly no hardships going up a class. I get to Daverend, I'm, I'm picked up by a chauffeur-driven limo. And the the nonsense was, the bit of business was that um, the other another limo had broken down, so we had to pick up another. Did I mind picking up the other person? So I said, of course not. And there was this mad woman with a dog, and she was a bit irritating, but I wasn't that bothered because I was in LA in a chauffeur-driven car. Mm. I got to a place where I was supposed to be meeting Terry, uh, and this guy turned up who was supposed to be the agent, her agent, who was trying to demand cash off me. And I said, oh, nothing to do with me, mate. I'm not going to part with cash. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, nothing to do with me, mate. I said, you've got to phone my editor. He'll sort that out. And eventually I got in to see it, and I opened the door to the hotel room. Um, I saw Terry Hatcher looking out over the balcony, and I thought to myself, well, she's put some weight on. (laughs) (laughs) She wasn't as tall as I thought, and a bit dumpy, and I thought, God, it's a bit of disappointment. And I carried on walking. As I stepped out, I noticed the cameraman to one side, and I turned round and noticed another cameraman on the other side of this balcony. I thought, oh, she must be shooting something, and I... And then Terry Hatcher turned round, and Terry Hatcher had a beard, and it was Edmunds. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the great move. And, of course, I'm genuinely surprised because I had no idea. But uh, whether it was worth the cost of it, I don't know. But I enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the amount of production and facilities and, and money they threw at that stunt, it was incredible, wasn't yeah, it? Absolutely. absolutely. I've got my own back on Noel because we got invited to um, uh, a meal after the show. And I, I brought along my dear friend, Christine Peake, who's now a stand-up comedian in, in Los Angeles, but at the time was best known as a former glamour model. And she could talk the iron legs of a donkey. And I made sure she sat next to no, <laughs> and she chewed his ears all night. I think he suffered more than I did. <laughs> so at the moment, you're still singing with the gonads. Yes. The, the nads are still performing. You're working, still working in the papers. You're an entertainment editor now. You're still running the column. So your workload is still colossal. Uh, yes. Your output is still prodigious. But you still find time to write detective thriller novels. Yes. Mean, how, got, how can that be? With difficulty, as I say, I'm very long hours and not much time to do anything but work. But uh, I enjoy it. I, it's writing. Um, the, I've got the fourth volume of the Harry Tyler series out on September the 9th. 
Uh, and I've started right work, but at a very early stage on the fifth volume. So that's all the work in progress. And Harry Tyler is, is kind of an echo of those days of the Sweeney. I guess. Well, in in a way, he's um, a bit later than that. It was nineties, and mm. I think the first book is set just after the millennium. Um, and he's an undercover copper. He's uh, based on real undercover coppers I knew who worked would infiltrate gangs and have quite nasty near misses with some of them. But um, yeah, and- that was all, that's a lot of a lot of the first book was based on real stories. That's interesting because they're, they're laced with violence and just a modicum of sex. Uh, and <laughs> it's the other way around. They're laced with sex with a modicum of violence. <laughs> and really, they strike me as being um, tailor made for a Netflix TV series or, or indeed a film. Is oh, that- thank you. I'd love it. I mean, we did try. Uh, Dave Legino from the Harry Potter films was a huge fan of Harry Tyler and wanted to play Harry. Mm. Um, and we did get approached a couple of times to turn it into a film but dave who sadly uh we lost him a few years ago mm. dave was concerned it, they weren't offering enough in the way of budget he said this is a million pound film and it can't be made for a hundred thousand pounds and so i bowed to his superior knowledge and turned down the office to develop it mm. yeah i understand uh, so we got another novel coming out in the in the next couple of months uh where uh, the, the the book that you're developing at the moment? Where will that take uh, Harry Tyler? In, in what direction? It will take him to America for his first overseas adventure. Oh, okay. But by this time, Harry will have not no longer be a cop; he will be a detective. Mm-hmm. He'll be a private eye. It'll be a, it'll be my own tribute to Ray Chandler. <laughs> oh. Nowhere near as good, but <laughs> that's the sort of thing. Excellent. And so you're still playing with the ads. Um, any any gonads albums to look, to look forward to we've got a new single coming out beginning of june mm-hmm. called three chords and the truth uh <laughs> <laughs> all our stories are very true all of our stories are very true i lost my love to a uk sub was one of the first true stories that we did mm. <laughs> so yeah no, three chords and the truth um based on the american tour <laughs> And um, um that's backed with a scarnad song which is our, one of our spin-off bands uh, uh an upbeat Scar punk song called "So Glad to Be Alive," which is really the first, I think, post-COVID song. Yeah, and 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 a beautiful title. Let's hope uh, it's not premature. Yeah. Um, so many people are, by way of winding up, so many people are associated. Des O'Connor, Michael Parkinson specifically, have been associated with Rod Hull and the Emu and encountering <laughs> encountering the Emu. What, oh, no. what, what? What? Tell me your encounter. With the, the dreaded stage bird. <laughs> oh dear! Um, <laughs> Tell okay. us about that yep. dreadful experience. Yes, it was. It was a harrowing experience. Um, Rod uh, was in the pantomime uh, down at South End, and he his part of the panto was he had to knock me down twice a night, twice a show, twice a performance. I'd been knocked to the floor by this blinking emu um and he always did it as hard as he could there was no softening up there was it, it was method acting i think so uh, i was i was getting knocked down a couple on a regular basis sometimes four times a day and um he was also let's say being a bit of a nuisance with the emu around the women a little bit of goosing was involved uh and on one particular occasion the leading lady came to me in tears uh and he'd upset her once too often i thought right i'm not having this and i went out and got myself my own emu 
and I hid this emu bedraggled thing it was in the um in the wings and before he came to knock me down the second time in that in that production in that uh, performance I went into the wings said, what's going on and I came back with the emu and immediately he realized the that the challenge was there <laughs> and he hit me as hard as he could with the emu so I hit him back as hard as I could with my emu. And we hit each other a few times, went into the wings. And he said, do you want some more of that? I said, yes, I do. We went out again, blackity and scratchy, bang, 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 bang. And the kids in the audience absolutely loved it. They loved it. They were lapping it up. Uh, but and I must say, his attitude calmed after that. <laughs> so uh, could he, he, that emu couldn't fly, unfortunately, nor could Rod, as we found out later. <laughs> So at least now, folks, that we have spoken with someone who managed to get their own back on the emu. And I think that should be... I did like Rod, though. He was a nice fellow. Yeah. Well, yeah. With the, the emu off his, off his arm, uh, he was a very bright uh, and yes. agreeable fellow. But as soon he was, as he strapped yeah. that thing on, it was almost <laughs> as if he was possessed. It was a Jekyll and Hyde moment, wasn't it? Absolutely. It, it extraordinary was, Absolutely. In view of the fact that I've taken up more than an hour of your time, in which time you could have written a column and two chapters of your book, <laughs> I think it must be an appropriate moment for me to let you go and say thank you very, very much indeed for your time, Gal. Um, no problem. Enjoyed it. Good luck. Very much good luck with the, uh, the new book and indeed the Gonad single coming out soon. Uh, if you want to... Uh, follow Gary if they got not not getting enough Gary Bushel input from the newspapers <laughs> and the books and the assault that you're getting uh, uh, from W H Smiths at every turn. There's the Gary Bushel's name. Uh, if you want to follow Gary's career, how can they do that, Gary? Well, they find me on uh, Twitter. They find me on Instagram. They find me on Facebook. They find a website which is Gary with two hours dash Bushel with two L's dot co dot uk. Uh, it's all out there. It's all out there on the net. They can, I am fine. I'm traceable. And if you want to hear something Gonadian that isn't going to split your ears open, <laughs> we have got a single as GBX, the Gary Bushley experience called Shonen the Alien that's just come out. So that's a bit milder. Excellent. Same sort of nonsense, but milder. So if you Google Shona and the Alien, uh, the Gonads, you, you'll you'll end up with uh, that, 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 that particular music gracing your ears. Shona and the Alien, GBX. Excellent. Okay, thank yeah. you for that. Thank you for your time, Governor. It is much, much appreciated. I no problem. Thank you, Carl. I really hope your podcast does well. I've heard a few of them and I've enjoyed them. That's very kind. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next week. Thank you.